Hello, welcome to the Keelan Yoga Podcast. Today's guest is Ellen Johansson. I'm sure I said that wrong. <laughs> and uh, I've known Ellen for maybe 20 years, although we haven't spoken to the interim. Uh, we did John Scott's first teacher training together. Well, at least I started it, to be honest. Um, and Ellen has then gone off and studied in depth into Buddhism and completed a master's in Tibetan language and translation. And, uh, and now is back in Norway after a long stint in Nepal. And she's still running retreats in Nepal and all around the world under Ashtanga Nepal, but now also in Norway under On Yoga. And she's providing all kinds of things for the uh, Norwegian yoga market, and lectures and uh, trying to integrate, I think, uh, Buddhist teaching with yoga as well as I understand. But anyway, we're going to hear more about that. So welcome, Ellen, to the Kin Yoga podcast. It's lovely to have you. Thank you very much. Cool. So, I mean, I suppose... I, to be fair, I mean, we never spoke loads of the, of the course because John was speaking most of the time. Um, yes. <laughs> he does like to speak. Um, do, do you want to please uh, just let me know about your background? I know you did. You were dancing, right? And, yeah. and then you came to John's and you had a very high level of practice. Um, and uh, I'd love to know a little bit more about how you what happened before I met you then on the, on the John's teacher training. Hmm. Well, I actually studied dance. Like you say, I studied in London. I studied at London Contemporary Dance School. And I think it was just by fate. Uh, the last week or so on my school, I was introduced to Danny Paradise. He was suddenly sitting in our school canteen and uh, he was showing us pictures of his practice with his leg behind the neck and it looked fascinating. And uh, and then we just sort of scraped together some uh, some money and we, we had Danny Paradise giving us some classes. I didn't know it was a shtanga then, but I just loved it. <laughs> and I just memorized, I think, the standing sequence. I noted them down and I just kept doing them. And I just liked the, I, I liked the breathing and the kind of grounding that the, the practice uh, uh, gave. So then uh, fast forward till uh, uh, 1994. I was in New York and I was dragged to Jiva Mukti and... Uh, uh, by some other dancers, then I, I was working as a dancer then. And I, once again, I just loved it. I loved Jiva Mukti. It was like uh, very free. It was very artistic. It was run by two ex-performers, Sharon and David. And uh, there mm. I actually uh, learned Ashtanga. And then I understood, aha, that's what I did 10 years ago. And now I learned the, the whole sequence. And so when did you meet Danny Paradise? What, what year was that? Do you remember? That must have been 89, I think. I was going yeah. to say, if you say 94, 89. Yeah, oh my I, God. So I was in London in 89 and then 94, I was in New York. So, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, it's a long time back. I think yeah, that was so by the time I'd met you, you'd been doing Ashtanga for like 15 years almost. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> or maybe I was a fast learner. Uh, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I learned it in, uh, in New York and then there was no, not much Ashtanga in Norway. So I just started teaching immediately. I just started teaching my colleagues and friends and, um, suddenly we, we had a community and suddenly mm. I was a Ashtanga teacher. Then I went to India first time in, in 97. But before that, I did some workshops here and there with John and, uh, and other teachers. You know, this was the time before, internet and uh, things were not really available it was just word of mouth and you knew kind of a handful of famous teachers and you tried as much as you could to connect with them or buy their vhs videos <laughs> and exactly exactly oh. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Hmm. so yeah then very I, different uh, era. 
Yeah, so then mm. I went to uh, to Mysore first time in in ninety seven, uh, and but the biggest impact on me was actually uh, being uh, introduced to yoga philosophy. I I just loved the the way of thinking. I was amazed that there was such a such an uh, insight into the mind and the whole idea of uh, of karma and um, uh, yeah this. Uh, uh, this way of life was, uh, it was, it felt to me like uh, very much like coming home. So I just loved India and that had a big impact. Not so much going to Patabit Shala, actually. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> so what, I mean, how did you relate the yoga that you were doing to the philosophy then that you were learning? Um, well, that's as a, you mentioned that the, the yoga sutras uh, that people generally learn uh, doesn't seem uh, to have an obvious bearing as we discussed prior to this interview. No, it doesn't happen uh, to deal with normal life that well. That's a good question, yeah. and and um, and I studied with a very traditional Brahmin, very, uh, and uh, I remember him telling me that uh, um, that uh, oh I I couldn't be enlightened <laughs> because I had to first be reborn as a Brahmin or something because I was right. I wouldn't be able to to pronounce the sun. Sanskrit uh, yeah. uh, correctly, so there was no way for me, and I remember I cried. <laughs> yeah, I was so sad. But then, luckily, you know, a few years uh, down the down the lane, I I uh, got introduced to Buddhism. Actually, also in Mysore, I met uh, I met some uh, Buddhists there, and uh, and then I understood that well, in in this camp, you don't have to be born such and such. <laughs> you everyone's welcome. So. Uh, so I started studying. Uh, I started studying Buddhism, and um, and I found that much more actually applicable to to my practice because it's, um, it's much more about you know your in, the intention with with which you do everything. Uh, you know what's it, what's your intention in in life, and you can apply that to uh, to anything. And it's not such. It's very. It consists of very practical methods as well in how you go about your daily life, how you meet people, how you see people. You know, it's it's not such a lofty uh, philosophy <laughs> as the mm, yours. Mm, mm. But for a very long time, you know, I got deeper into Buddhism, and as you say, I, as you said, I was also studying uh, uh, academically uh, uh, for years and years. And for a long time, it felt as if I had one leg in in each camp un until I, <laughs> until I, um, got a bit wiser and actually studied the the Indian uh, uh, philosophies in in more depth and especially the history and I say that so that well it's all yoga it's all one tradition it's just you know over time it has become in after time it has been for political and uh, and yeah, other reasons yeah. Uh, it has been separated and, you know, people are always seeking uh, identity and to promote their view and, and therefore we write history in after time and, and we for forget about the situation, how it was when everyone was just practicing yoga, whether you were Buddhist or Jain or Brahmin or whatever you were. So, yeah. yeah, I think you make a good point that I think it's more recently that there, there's been a more rigid definition between yoga and Buddhism, whereas... I don't think it was really that. I, don't think, I think both traditions borrowed from each other and were much, you know, more in free conversation with each other. Although they disagreed, I suppose, yeah. on certain points. I mean, for, yeah. for the for the listenership, would you like to, if you could, explain the fundamental difference, say, between the yoga view that is and the Buddhist view? 
It's well, often it's people actually... have the question, or oh, can I be a Buddhist and practice yoga? Or what are the differences between yoga philosophy and Buddhism? No. Well, of of course you can be a Buddhist and, and practice yoga. Uh, yeah. uh, it's difficult living to testimony. <laughs> it's it's difficult to spot at first what the difference is, and and you need to study some philosophy to really understand it. And it has to do with the ontology about who we are and what the world is and how the world exists. So whereas uh, uh, Patanjali's philosophy is a is a dualistic one where you have a you have a, a separation between your soul and the material reality. In Buddhism, it's all really causality. It's all cause and effect. So, so, uh, so, so nothing, <laughs> nothing really ultimately exists. And you, and neither do you have a personal soul. Uh, there is a, there is a, a, a deepest, a deepest layer of our mind. The nature of mind is all pervasive. It pervades all sentient beings. And in that way, uh... Yeah, it's about ontology of uh, who we are and what uh, reality consists of. So Patanjali has a dualistic ontology where you have the, the you have nature, uh, uh, prakriti on one side and you have the soul on the other side and they, they never actually meet. They're separate, two separate things. And the path is very much to realize what you are not, that you are not your body, you are not your mind, you are not your thoughts, you are not your higher self, and 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 so forth, till you end up with isolate <laughs> with total isolation of uh, of purusha. Uh, whereas in in Buddhism there is no like personal soul in that sense. There is a deepest layer of uh, of mind that's called the luminosity or the nature of mind, and it pervades every living being. So, so we don't talk about so much about humans and animals. We talk about sentient beings is a, is a term that we use for all living. And apart from that, reality is much more rendered from our cognitive side, how we perceive reality. So there's no like ultimate reality out there. There's no like ultimate existence. Everything is causes and conditions that mixes with our karmic tendencies. And that's how we perceive the world. So, uh, so that's why uh, the path is uh, uh, is uh, to realize your interdependency and your relational self, rather than rather than your isolated Atman uh, mm, or, mm. or or soul. So that's why also compassion is the path, and compassion and wisdom is indivisible because uh, you learn through practicing compassion your connectedness with every living being. And uh, uh, and that is uh, and that realization is is wisdom it's, itself. When you when you find that uh, the deepest uh, sense of uh, of who you are that is not separate from other living beings. Mm, mm, mm. So that's why it's, uh, it's difficult to spot the difference. So mm. where is the <clears throat> where is your ethics coming from? You know, is it something you do to to purify your personal self, to become more like sattvic and to liberate yourself, or is it, uh, or is it something you do because you have realized uh, deeply, or uh, maybe not realized deeply, but you want to realize deeply that you are non-separate from uh, uh, from every living being? 
So these are two, these are two, uh, different, uh, different views. So view is very important in, in Buddhism to clarify your view that you really understand this interconnectivity with, with every living beings and you, and you let that motivate all your actions. Yeah. Yeah. So instead of trying to just purify the mind in a kind of, like, if we go back to the Patanjali idea of the, just the Chittaviti Narodaha kind of an up and out, you're, you're actually trying to focus on compassion or, or connectedness yeah. instead yeah, of yeah. disconnectedness as it were yeah. yeah if you're connected to every living being they, they mm. can't be and it follows that there cannot be any any individual liberation so everything you have to do has to be motivated by liberating everyone and mm. that kind of, mm. that, that's the liberating thought in itself it frees you from this like isolated clinging to your ego and this kind of we call it neurotic ego clinging so yeah. it's like yeah. even even you know on your path you experience more like i think more joy or or more connectedness yeah, yeah. i i remember the time as well from my stint in, in buddhist uh Mm. this monastery yeah I'm, yeah i'm uh, sure i'm, I'm sure you said a lot of prayers for all living beings <laughs> <laughs> i'm not not as well as you in tibetan i'm sure yeah, but i was actually going to ask you if you would say some tibetan um and tibetan chant uh, I would you do that um, yeah okay excellent do it yeah Dagi jin so kipe sonam ki drola panchir sangye drupa sho so that one <laughs> excellent thank you yeah I, yeah. Go, uh, I go for refuge to the buddha the dharma and the sangha by the merit of generosity and so forth may i attain liberation for the sake of all living beings i just remember the pattern and the small little mm. syllables yeah, yeah yeah i used to love that yeah we used to have to get up and, and say it like at 7 a.m i remember which was quite early for me at the time so we'd go <laughs> into the uh the puja room and, and do like an hour and a half of those prayers and you just be trying to follow along with those long tablets that the you know because yeah. they're written yeah. really long form yeah. <laughs> you'd be turning my, i don't have a clue what i'm saying but i quite like it um and that's before i started yoga actually and just mm. happened there was i never told you i was like 10 minutes up the road from uh from my house i used to cycle there as like an 18 year old and just for some reason <laughs> yeah, called tendril auspicious circumstance yes must have been auspicious <laughs> what's happened after i don't know so much but but you know so so you know talking about that my, my serious question is then how does that relate to yoga asana or how did you kind of square that with yoga asana because i could kind of in a way see how yoga asana you know a wish for stasis well it's, it's, it's more like, yeah sorry carry a, on yeah it certainly relates to yoga asana just as much mm. as Patanjali relates to yoga asana. Uh, now, to uh, to be more serious, uh, uh, I was confused for a long time because I didn't I didn't know about this uh, uh, the physical dimension of uh, of Buddhism or that there were indeed uh, uh, very physical practices in Buddhism as well. Uh, but they they came as a later state at a later state in the beginning at Patanjali's time. People were mostly concerned with seated meditation. That was the practice. Dhyana meditation was what everyone was doing. But when it comes to the later uh, stages with, with Hatha yoga and Tantric yoga, you get the physical practices. So, uh, so the physical practices of, of uh, Hatha yoga, they were imported to uh, Tibet 
around the the eighth, eighth to tenth century, uh, and they they developed further there. So in Tibet, you have this special uh, Tsalung practices, Tsalung Trulko practices that are very hard, but they are definitely Hatha Yoga, where you jump up and you bump down on your <laughs> in full lotus pose on your root chakra to make the to make the uh, the the energy uh, travel up your uh, your central channel. Uh, so you have many you have many uh, uh, practices like that, but uh, this is within the Vajrayana tantric context. So of course you do it always with the uh, intention and visualization. So you need the foundation. That's the difference. You really need the foundation of uh, compassion and understanding, some insight, uh, if you're going to be able to do these practices. Of course you can jump up and down and do the physical stuff, and and I did it as well. <laughs> knocked myself black and blue uh, without understanding so much about the the foundation of it so we would do a lot of prayers and then we would jump up and down um but the, it's actually a beautiful thing i i learned it again this summer we had a, a retreat here in norway actually with uh, my teacher dopotukurimpoche and we had uh, also scholar ian baker uh, like contextualizing and explaining the the practices so we had a fantastic time and i learned the practices again and i i would say i would dare say i'm much more mature now <laughs> having studied a bit of uh you know tibetan philosophy so so you need to know when you are when you are uh trying to maintain a, a visualization of yourself as a deity while you're doing these practices yeah you you have to uh, of course understand all the symbolism of uh, of what that image or that deity what it represents so so that requires learning and, and studying and then it's an incredible efficient method to to weave all these understanding together into one picture and then you merge it with an energetic practice and this is where the ashtanga yoga comes in because i think ashtanga yoga is a fantastic tool to develop that uh, access to your body, to your subtle body. And then I think the practices can be very efficient. And maybe even if you, if you don't do uh, hundreds and thousands of prostrations or jump up and down, uh, maybe you already have access to the, to the body and, and to your subtle body. I think you develop a certain sensitivity through, you know, 20 years or, or so of Ashtanga. And I think that is really helpful in, in that context. Mm, mm. It's really sad that we don't take our practice there, that we kind of stay with this obsession of uh, getting our legs <laughs> behind our head or whatever. I mean, as enjoyable as it is, it's <laughs> not going to last forever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely um, truncated somewhat. If you look at the Tibetan Buddhist practices and the visualizations and the mantra, and then, you know, and also, you know, the original Hatha Yoga practices where it was involving mantra and yeah, yeah all, ki all kinds of other things. And then you've got now modern yoga, which is, yes, let's say, uh, you know, slightly singular in its approach. Um, but you had the prostrations. You had to do the prostrations, the preliminary prostrations as well in Buddhism, right, as the... As the uh, yeah, they, they work yeah. in a very much uh, in a similar way that they really mm. awaken your, your body because you do a hundred thousand of them and it takes five six weeks uh, doing it for like six seven hours a day. So it's the, it's a quick path, uh, but strenuous one. 
uh, when uh, and you're supposed to maintain a, a visualization of the the three jewels, the Buddha Dharma and the Sangha, and your root guru while you're doing it. So it can be uh, in, incredibly efficient. But I think the pure, like the physical aspect of it, like opening your 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 uh, your channels, it also comes through yoga practice, obviously. And I think it's. Uh, it, I think the the hatha yoga aspects of ashtanga yoga is so downplayed because mm. uh, I, I think at the time when ashtanga yoga or when modern physical yoga was developed uh, uh, there was not much regard for hatha yoga it had deteriorated so much it had a low status at, at that point so when one, one wanted to use some more like lofty philosophy and yeah patanjali yoga sutras came to the rescue and i think yeah. that's sad in a way because it's so obvious for for us as practitioners that it it works in a very in an energetic way mm. and but we don't have like a, we don't have a, a con context for what we experience mm. it just exactly like, oh yeah i feel good from my practice or oh it's thanks to the it's thanks to the correct method it's because i followed the <laughs> because i i followed the 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 practice without altering anything and uh, we 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 sort of we don't have a, a framework to put these genetic yeah. uh, or experiences or realizations i would say into so they just it's just like a fantastic vehicle that we never get to drive really i think that's exactly it that's what happened is that and for people that don't know is it seems like you have this hatha yoga tradition where you know our postures and our modern postures come out of and then for some mm -hmm. reason it gets kind of somewhat conjoined with yoga sutras really or, or uh, this kind of dualist philosophy because it had kind of attempted a way to kind of clean it up and present it in a westernized or rational manner to to you know it's, i mean it's coming out of a colonial perspective i think of trying to make it applicable and valid and reasonable mm -hmm. in in the, the eyes of the westerner right you know whereas you know yeah. at the time when it was coming out of india in the late 1900s early 20th century though know, these kind of you know practices was, were looked down upon as you know yeah. as lesser because yeah. they're bodily practices that they're somewhat you know uh, salubrious you know uh, involved yeah. in you know strange and weird tantric ideas and so you know people like uh, Vivekananda you know kind of just brush that to the side and just say hey yeah. here's the yoga sutras it's a yeah. rationalist kind of it's kind of very much like your god you know it's your dualist you know you could very very similar to to the western perspective that they assume that that's uh well it actually did work for the western audience didn't it but it, yeah. it leaves us a little bit high and dry in some ways but for yeah, what so. we're doing an embodied practice yeah yeah, I think you're, I, I think you're right. I think that was, uh, uh, it's really created from uh, both sides, you know, from the Indian side and the Western side, the kind of wish to be, to appear very modern and very scientific. Mm. And uh, we sometimes forget that that happened from the Indian side as well. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's time to, <laughs> it's time to bring it back. Uh, it's a, it's more appropriate. That's that's what what the the spiritual traditions say as well. You know the 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 hatha yoga and the tantric the physical practices are appropriate for our times. We are not we're not able to sit down and and still our minds just like that. Uh, so I think we we have to understand more, and and we are in a way understanding more in the from 
from a scientific perspective about the mind and body connection and how these practices might um, contribute contrib contribute and affect the nervous system and the endocrine system and that can account for how it makes us feel better and more pro-social and and all that but uh, i like both perspectives i don't want to give it all to the uh, you know yeah. to the yeah. scientific perspective because we it, we have to know it from the we have to understand it from the experiential side as well not just from the scientific side that's what matters to us anyway mm, 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 mm. and there's something more than just thinking oh it's regulating the nervous system yeah, i don't yeah. know it's mm. yeah it seems to somehow somewhat dilute what we're doing um yeah so how do you integrate these Buddhist teachings into the yoga that, in the way that you're teaching Ashtanga? Then do they have any crossover in the way that you're teaching? And you mentioned, you know, you're doing stuff with Buddhism and trying to kind of yeah, use those teachings as well. Yeah. yeah, we are we are doing stuff. I mean, I uh, uh, we we practice meditation as part of. Uh, uh, as part of our, our training and and then i i try to make my students understand that uh, uh you know meditation is a uh, you can is a is a training that is progressive just as your asana practice is progressive because sometimes we just sit down and we don't want to go anywhere with uh, with meditation it's just like calming down is like this uh, one teacher calls it stupidity in meditation or just for the the aim is just you know being mindful being slow <laughs> yeah so uh, whereas uh, from the buddhist perspective you can really uh, you use different techniques that, and uh, meditation is also a way to develop your inner qualities and that's your qualities of of love and compassion and uh, it's it's not like oh either you are a compassionate person or you're not no these are regarded as the nature of our mind these are fundamental to us as human beings that's how our how we can exist that's how mm. we survive as a species we know how to take care of it, each other we know how to to read each other we know how to communicate uh, and so this is innate in us but it's undeveloped and and buddhism aims as at um, at enhancing these qualities and you can do it through meditation you can mix visualization and you can open to that nature of mind where the kind of solidity of the ego dissolves and you feel more interconnected with with people and i think that also carries over into our practice it's not like a solitary practice that we do if if we are just aware that we are there in the room with people and we have their support and their energy uh, that can well carry over to our practice and we can uh, and we can uh, uh, keep that in mind you know in the the post practice also that's the trick really to to carry what we experience in in practice because we might feel very you know kind and open and relaxed during our practice but but what do we do what do we do post practice how do we carry that mm. on into, mm. Mm. into uh, the rest of our lives so that's the perspective can you use any of these tools in the mm -hmm. practice itself like, can you use the visualization or do you bring any kind of bet tibetan or buddhist teachings into the very asana practice itself or is it just more like the context of philosophy you can't use visualization or any particular things and insert them into the ashtanga practice i don't really do no. that uh, you don't do that right myself you know i, right. I might I might do that sometimes. I, I might, you know, visualize my guru or, or prostrating to my, to the three jewels or something in practice, but it's not right. something 
I teach, uh, I teach uh -huh. my students like that. So yeah, I think right, it's more so more just the giving a context of what you're doing and why uh, you're doing context. it. Yes, yeah. I think uh, I yeah. think an overall intention with what you're doing. I think yeah. so. Yeah, mm. yeah. As you say, I mean, it's like it seems such an obvious question, but you know, often it's like people are like, well, I feel good about it, so I do it, kind of thing. It's not there's not like a clear like, I what am I aiming for here? You know, what's yeah, the yeah. what's the you know, real reason I'm doing this? Not just kind of like, oh, like I feel better, you know, like oh, I feel yeah. But it's but like not, why? What are you looking for? You know, I and mean, I think these are all valid questions, but we don't kind of get round to ask them a lot of the time, really. You know, yeah. So it's um, also a problem with uh, you know this. Um, um, so let's call it love and compassion that we might get in touch with during practice. They're so obvious to us. They're so innate to us right. that we don't always yeah. discover them. But uh, if you become more aware of them, if you, if you do that through meditation, you can see how that actually is your nature and it, it pervades your life and everyone around you. Mm. So a lot of this time um, you were learning this, you were, you were spent in Nepal. Um, yeah. And... Well, I'm really intrigued to know. I mean, you were there for nine years, you told me. Um, yeah. And I, teaching Ashtanga, I suppose. To, so you're mm -hmm. making a living teaching Ashtanga and, and, and then studying for your master's and well, your undergraduate and then your master's in Tibetan. Um, I, how was that? Can you, I mean, I know it's a large question, but how, how was that time? I mean, you know, with there, I suppose you're also spending time in Tibetan monasteries there. And, you know, yeah. yeah. Like to, people would so, be intrigued, I think, to, to learn more yeah. about that. Actually, our school, the Rangjung Yeshe Institute, was situated inside a monastery. So it was the monastery of uh, Chakinima Rinpoche. And the uh, story goes that he was very tired of seeing all these Dharma bums hanging around uh, Kathmandu, drinking cappuccino and, and uh, picking up some Buddhist teachings here and there. So he wanted to educate them in the way that uh, monks are educated. But obviously, monks are educated. They do a monastic shedra. Many people don't know that. But uh, it's a huge... Tibetan Buddhism is a huge scholarly tradition, so they study a lot. Mm. They have to maintain their whole like textual uh, uh, tradition, among other things, and ritual tradition. So they study for like nine years. So in uh, uh, in in the Rangjung Yeshe curriculum, they they pick some of the core texts and core topics, and we study them for for like um, four years, or or if you do a master, two more years. Uh, uh so yeah it was pretty special you know just to be in a in a context where everyone is a practitioner that's kind of taken for given that that's what mm -hmm. you're there for that's what we're in the world for you know to practice and to be in a in a in a context where where people they do go in retreats you know your friends say oh i won't see you for a month my phone is off i'm going to go in solitary retreat for a month i'm going to do my practices so it's a uh, it's a scene where I, I think uh, liberation and your path and your practice is taken very, very seriously. And you just, <clears throat> you just wake up in your neighborhood and, and you hear your neighbors praying, doing pujas and doing these pretty advanced practices like, uh, like chair practices and, uh, which in, you know what they involve, that they involve visualization and handling ritual instruments and recitations at the same time. So people are quite, you know, advanced practitioners uh, around you. So it's um, uh, uh, in one uh, uh, in in one sense, I feel like uh, like Kathmandu is the center of the world. Like sometimes people think, oh, you live so far away. I'm like, 
No, I live right in the center. <laughs> this, this is where the traditions are alive, you know. <clears throat> this is where both the, the Buddhist and Hindu traditions are alive, and it, it's very much like what India probably used to be. Yeah. And were you living? So were you living in a monastery, and and your fellow practitioners and and, and students were, were they Western or Indian or Tibetan? Mm-hmm. Well, the, I wasn't living in the monastery, but the, I went to school in the monastery in the uh, yeah. in the monastery classrooms, uh, and uh, there was an international group of students, many Americans, right. Europeans, huh. Australians, and in these days there are more and more. Uh, Nepalese and, and Asian people, Chinese, Taiwanese, um, uh, Asian students are, are coming to the schools these days. But um, at, when I was there, not so many Nepalese uh, and Indians because uh, uh, <laughs> they might want to, <laughs> they might not uh, uh, want to want to do a, a kind of study where you're not granted getting a job afterwards there's not that many jobs in the field is more something you do like a vocation i think yeah uh, but uh, yeah it was really a, an international scene and uh, of course we got many fantastic guest lecturers from mm. the universities around the world that has a department for for buddhist studies they would come so we would have like a lot of great scholars teaching us as well as monks senior monks mm. So, so that was the, that's the speciality of, of that school. Like you're not, it's not like going to a Western university doing, uh, religious studies where you have to do a bit of every religion. You can focus just on, on Buddhism and the Buddhist, uh, uh, tradition and you focus and you focus on it uh, from the, from the insider's perspective and from the uh, scholarly uh, perspective. I mean, also the monks are, of course, also scholars in their tradition. Um, so yeah, that was, that was pretty special. And then if you're a practitioner, you can just go downstairs to the, to the shrine hall and, and do your practice and, and put what you learn into, into practice. Mm. So most uh, of the students and the, and the teachers were also practicing Buddhist. I, I, yeah. What, what was the longest retreat you did? It's a good, uh, <laughs> I'm not a good practitioner. Uh, I don't do such long retreats. I did a, uh, when I lived in the, in the monastery, I did a, a month retreat, uh, once with the, with the nuns where we were doing salong. We were doing the salong trulko, the beps and jumping and stuff. So that was a month, uh, all day. Um, but I didn't That's do quite long, a while, you know, didn't yeah. do long retreats, maybe a week. You know, I told you, I mentioned I was living at that Tibetan. Buddhist monastery. It was the Kagyu tradition, so it's going to. Be, it was actually a, a retreat center for people doing the Lama retreat, you know. So it's the three three year retreat. So I was cooking for them. I, you know, I, I no. worked as a cook, right? So I was doing their food, and I just leave it outside the door, and these people would go in there, you know, they'd go in a room, you know, and they'd stay there for three years, three months, it's, three days. It's amazing you know? that you can do that in in England. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's you could do it in England. It's the one place you can do it. But it just yeah. struck me as insane. And but I was very intrigued by it. Like ever since then, I couldn't really get it out of my head. Like it was just like it sounds like kill or cure. If you go in a room on your own for three years, yeah. it's either going to go very well or very badly, or you know mm-hmm. something's going to break in a yeah, good yeah. way or a bad way. You know. I guess you need to prepare for that, and yeah. uh, you will have a retreat master, I think, and you will have a. a oh yeah. Yeah, they do see, I think they do get instruction or like they have recourse yeah. to someone, obviously. They're not, you know, and also they could come out if they need to, if it didn't 
yeah. it wasn't going yeah, yeah. well. <laughs> Not locked in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there are there are different ways of doing it. In some of these group retreats, you also have sessions together where you do a practice, and and some of them will be completely solitary. So there are different ways of of doing it. Uh, but when you think about it, you know, on the other hand, if you think of you know trying to focus on anything these days, how easy is that? You know, not answering emails and not being available and just postponing things for yourself. So it's, I think it's really necessary to, to cut everything off and you don't have to do maybe three years, but, uh, um, it's actually very difficult. Uh, if you have that experience that you're really trying, you, you say to yourself, Oh, this week I'm going to do that. I'm going to finish writing this or that. And then there's, there's just always something, uh, yeah. in the way. Yeah. 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 Let alone three years, just something yeah. even basic. It's getting around to something basic. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so when you were in, in um, Nepal, you were also teaching Ashtangas. You had a center there or your classes, regular classes and, and students would come from abroad and learn with you there. Yeah, well, um, I did different things. Uh, when I first moved there, there were three yoga studios run by a, a Dutch lady that were really mm. wonderful yoga studios. They were called Pranamaya. Uh, uh, and that is where uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of traveling yoga teachers who would, who would stay for a while in Nepal would, would teach there. Uh, so I, I started teaching, uh, I started teaching there. Uh, then things changed. She moved, and uh, and I was offered that uh, I was offered to uh, uh, to teach in uh, in a yoga studio of a of a friend of mine. He has a very beautiful hotel in the center of Tamil, and he actually built the yoga studio because he likes to do ashtanga. He was also a ashtanga practitioner, so I was offered that studio. Uh, so I started teaching there. I started the Miso program, uh, and we kept it going for. Mm, two years, I think, until COVID. Uh, and I, there I had all kinds of, uh, students. Uh, there's a lot of expats living in, uh, in Kathmandu. So I had some of those, some Western expats. I had some fantastic Nepali students who have now taken over the studio. Um, and, and then there would be, uh, then there would be people who, who came to Nepal to, to study with me, which I, was very honored that that happened and and then some then travelers and all kinds of people that was really the mm. fun about uh, uh, teaching in uh, in Kathmandu it was it gathered all kind of different people but and then it was some international teachers came through as well you mentioned John Scott had come and taught yeah. there on trees and yeah. yeah, this was at the this was at the peak of my uh, uh, of my yoga teaching in uh, in uh, Nepal was when uh, uh, some other friends of mine were were starting to organize all these uh, retreats with um, with uh, international teachers. So John Scott was there and Petri was there, and um, uh, oh, what's his name? <laughs> I forgot uh, uh, the 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 leads the guy in Leeds. Um, well, I the guy, oh Joey, Joey Miles, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know if he, uh, if he was there because this happened. They had all these uh, international teachers lined up. Uh, okay, before, okay, right, yeah, before COVID, right? Yeah, they were all going to come and teach in Nepal uh, in, in 2020, right? Uh, and then COVID happens, and and yeah. now there's no more of these. Uh, they huh. don't. Have, 
there's no more of this uh, organizing retreats. And, uh, and you came back yourself. Too. You came back to Norway to, to live in Norway again, right? Uh, yeah, during I came, COVID. I came back to Norway. Yeah. I, I thought I was going back for a couple of months. And then right. <laughs> two years later, there was still COVID. And I was still in Norway. But yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. Things happened in, in Norway. I'm still not sure uh, where I'm going. But uh, for the moment, uh, You're staying I, there. I, yeah, I'm staying there. We started on yoga. I started a MISO program here in Norway. Have you? Have you? In, in Oslo? I have, but, uh, but then my hip yeah. happened, so right. uh, I'm not teaching. Uh, Are you not teaching? MISO. Right. I'm okay. not teaching MISO, daily MISO anymore. I focus more on uh, like teaching weekend retreats and, and other retreats now. All right. Well, you know, the ostensible reason I reached out to Ellen, first of all, was about the hip thing. Um, so I think you'd have been quite well. Let's talk about that a little bit now to finish our, our chat together. Um, although I actually really, really enjoy this. Not that well, I wasn't expecting to, but it's been really interesting. And uh, but no, nevertheless, I wanted to talk about this hip thing. Um, so you were public in as much as many people haven't been. Uh, and there's been a lot of people that have had uh, yoga related operations and even hip operations i would say actually um although not many people have come forward like you had and posted on social media you'd had it it was a hip replacement right you had it was a total hip replacement whole right. joint sort okay. of <laughs> yeah oh wow <laughs> right so uh, why did that happen do you think um and how is it going recovering from it um yeah mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about it with uh yeah um I don't know, actually, because uh, uh, it's partly an uh, inherited uh, condition. My mom has had both her hips replaced, so it's probably something in my genes. But right. uh, maybe it hasn't actually uh, uh, contributed to my health to stick my legs behind my head as much as I have done. Uh, because, Possibly. Yeah, like, yeah, you could. Yeah. So that could, could make a guess. Yeah. Uh, that could do it. Uh, so I, you know, I noticed a few years back, it's, it started to, my hip just started to jam. Actually, usually when I bent over to adjust someone in, in the MISO room, I couldn't get up again. It just kind of jammed. And then it just got more and more painful, um, uh, to the over extent. Over a few years, just, just over a few years. Yeah, over a few years, but then it uh, it uh, it increased the the right. last year when I was teaching Mysore and probably you know lifting people and doing heavy mm. adjustments uh, was not uh, such a good thing to do. So then it was just unbearable, and uh, and I talked to a friend of mine who was a uh, a dancer, and she said, so you know it's it's just ruining your life. Just just have it replaced is much better. So uh, yeah, I decided to do that and to just go for a total replacement uh, uh, to to get rid of the pain. That was all I I cared about. As long as I can, you know, sit and meditate and walk, so I can do my uh, my walking uh, and my uh, um, uh, what do you call it retreats and trekking uh, adventures in Nepal. Then I'll right, be happy. so so not only could you not practice with the hip, but you, you couldn't really walk around probably either. Was that bad? No, no, I couldn't really walk. It was uh, excruciatingly painful after like uh, ten, fifteen minutes of walking. And what happens right. is that uh, uh, it's not just the local pain, but the what the body does, it contracts everything around the injured part. So right. everything gets so stiff and so crooked. So it affects your whole body. 
And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of that because I also studied, uh, anatomy and, you know, like we, we, uh, we, um, uh, like we, we studied with David Kyle and this in the myofascial, myofascial, mm. uh, mm. reaction that you get, everything gets so stuck. Uh, so, uh, so I lost my practice in that way that it was not enjoyable anymore because, mm. uh, 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 usually when you, when you practice or, or uh, work out or do something, it, things get better, but it was exactly the opposite. If I had yeah. a good day of practice and I felt, oh, today I feel more open today. I can do stuff. The day after would just be a nightmare. Then the body would just contract and react and everything would get irritated and painful. And I'm like, this is a downward spiral. I don't want this. Anything right. that can that can relieve it, I will I will do that. So yeah. So I just decided to go for the the surgery because I mean it's nothing that can repair worn out cartilage really. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. In, and you can yeah you can you can see it on the X rays that where it's supposed to be a, a like a nice rounded joint capsule is just like a cloud, <laughs> you know. Right. So then it's better. So... How has it been since then? How has so it when been? When was this? How how long how long how long are we talking now? When did you have it? Like six months um, ago? How long was it? Yeah. So now this was in the beginning of June. Yeah. So yeah, we're talking four or five months. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it just takes its time, you know. And the body does its thing. So it's been a, a learning experience. It's actually amazing that uh, you can go up and walk after that's that's no problem i was walking i was quickly up on my legs and and walking right after uh which is uh, amazing considering that they saw off your femur and replace the the neck of the femur the ball and the socket they carve out a oh new socket God. in your hip and put in a replacement so it's i mean it's this big thing that is put into your into your your body so of course the body even if you're asleep the body reacts with the traumas everything course, uh, everything yeah. Yeah. pulls together after that and it just uh, it, it it was a learning experience in what it feels like to be really stiff to to have your legs like up like this when you're trying to do padakonasana <laughs> so everything uh, everything was just very stiff and it it took took its time to to release uh, but now I, I feel it's it's getting better. I'm back to I'm back to my practice. I just did uh, in October. I did a, a, a trekking trip in in Nepal where we walked really high up in the mountains, and it was absolutely fine. Yeah, like so you're walking for for hours a day on rough terrain. And yeah, you're yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm okay with that. There's no problem well, with the hypnosis. The the pain just goes immediately. It's more like everything around that. Uh, right, right, right. I have to say, uh, of a friend of mine who's had their hip replacement fairly recently, she said hip mobility is better, but now the lower back is very, very stiff and yes, she's having problems yeah. now. Yeah, I could, yeah, I could yeah. feel that as well. That right. my my lower back just got really stiff whenever I tried yeah. to. Yeah. To kind of protect. But the hip that, is more so. So you can do leg behind the head and this kind of thing now with the hip. Can, I don't attempt leg behind you the don't, head. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, no, I'm, I'm just asking. You know, yeah. Yeah. Asana, 
I, I think that's fine, Padmasana. Oh yeah, fine. I'm not saying you should, but I'm just I'm just curious. Yeah, <laughs> don't don't try it. Cause <laughs> no, I, I don't do Ekapada, but I do like uh, uh, I did like Suptakurmasana the other day. You know when just be, pretty but intense, also, yeah. But also because my legs are long, so if I bend forward, I can pretty much stick my head down. You know, between my feet, it's not such a it's not such a big um, big thing. Whereas sitting up is more pressure from the neck. Yeah, if it's something like Badakonasana, for example, you can get the, mm. the legs are rolling. Yeah. You know, the thighs are rolling down towards the floor, and yeah, that's fine no. because that's external right. rotation. So you're actually rotating the the femur into the hip sockets. It's more like internal right. rotation that is more yeah. vulnerable. Or the hips, so I'm not okay. supposed to. I'm not supposed to right. sit my legs, for instance. Right. Yeah. Ah. What's the? I mean, what, what's the prognosis? Do you think you'll get back to doing intermediate series again, or are you happy just to you know, just swap some basic mobility and walking, and and you know just mm -hmm. having been pain free? I think I'll be back to. Uh, uh, I think I'll be back to uh, Padmasana and and yeah. these things. I mean, I'm I'm pretty happy just to have that sense of flow in my practice <laughs> these days sure, absolutely, but then absolutely. of course there are things that you uh, that you enjoy uh things that are fun to to do <laughs> so well but not uh, not i mean when i think about it i did also uh, back in the days i did the advanced a series and, and they are extreme on the hips i don't think it's really good to do I don't think anyone should probably yeah, do that. Yeah, well, that's a whole other question, isn't it? Which we probably probably won't explore in this podcast. But yeah, I mean, I you know, I did it as well in my sort. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think for a lot of people, it's uh, those movements are extreme, um, yeah. and uh, you know, only a few people can I think for yeah every... sustain them for a longer period of time. Um, yeah. Well, is it hard to to let go of practice for you? I mean, I know you were very very into the practice and into i mean you were a dancer from young age so no, has it, it was... been hard to let go of that physicality yes and no mm. uh, i was i was happy to let go of it because i uh, because i just wanted to get rid of pain uh yes I was, right yeah i was so tired of being in pain all the time so mm. i uh, and then i i have other practices you know yeah i have I have my Tibetan yoga practices, so it's more like I'm more like going for that energy experience. So I, it doesn't matter to me so much whether I can do, um, you know, advanced uh, yoga practices as as long as I can be in the flow because that's what I know. I've been doing it for more than twenty years, almost thirty years. So as long as I can get into like feeling what my what my body is supposed to feel like. Feeling the the energy in the core, you know the 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 strength, the yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, that's that's the most important for me these days. Mm. So I think it's uh, many of us older practitioners that <laughs> we are happy with. We're happy with a bit less, but we love our practice. So well, I think it's like I, I compare it to like. Someone who's you makes money, right? And before you've made that money, you kind of think money's the answer. And in a way, it's the same with yoga. It's like if you if you can do, or if you once you've done the stuff, it's a blessing, and you know, in a way, because then you realize it's not about the stuff, you know. Yeah. yeah. Because before, if you couldn't do the stuff, it, you know, it's great in a way because you don't have to. But if if you can do it, you kind of almost like have to do it to make sure that it's not there. You know, it's like yeah. after the advanced series, you know, and I do it in Mysore, you go into the office yeah. with Sharat, and he says. 
still many things wrong you know and it's like nothing happens <laughs> nothing happens in fact quite the opposite you know it's like and then i think can i you know what i could probably do without that now you know like i, I you know it's kind of done it and then you know like yeah happy to let it go so it already was a quite i mean i know a lot of people have it with the practice so i don't let it go i want to keep up with my practice and doing those but for me i i ask you it but i didn't really care i couldn't care less once you've done it it's like okay it wasn't there either it wasn't there either you know i thought no. it might be something you know but not there either but now you're saying that the, you know to bring it back to you that you've got a trouble with the other hip you know you, you're, you're having some trouble pain in the so, other hip right yeah, it's more that that uh, unfortunately oh, no. is in both hips so i just want a little a little space of freedom to practice before i go into that like the other second process second with the second hip. oh god uh, wow. Now I do have experience, so I know what to expect. And I will just lay low for the like first month or so. I want, like I did, I was like desperate. I tried to do everything at once. I was out walking like a, <laughs> a week after. I just took one stick and I went for a walk. I think went walked more than four kilometers, and I was just dead. It was too much. Yeah. Uh, I did, uh, I did a lot of strength training, which I think was good. It helped stabilizing the, the hip so that I was very careful about balancing, you know, strength and mobility to protect the, the new artificial joint. So mm -hmm. I, will, I will take that experience, uh, with me and, uh, and hopefully it will be, uh, easier, uh, the second time. But I, I, on the other hand, I don't have the fear that the new joint will not be functional, that I will not be able to do things. I was so happy this summer when I was doing the the Tsalung retreat, the Tibetan yoga retreat, that I could just sit, you know, cross-legged with a straight back and resting my knees on the floor with open hips. That's really all you need to regulate mm. your energy. Mm. Of course, it's fun to do sun salutations and jump throughs and handstands as well. But um, yeah. Oh, you know, when it, I mean, when it when push comes to shove, mm. in the end, just having a pain-free body you know there's not you know mm. you're just grateful for that you know um so i mean any tips for people that, um recovering from from you know surgeries a hip or a knee or you know i mean i had two knee, knee surgeries when i was young but you know oh, okay. doesn't really count in a way because i was like 25 you know mm. and i just like i got up the next week and i did primary series and i just kind of forced my you know i was <laughs> That's all right, you know, but I wouldn't be like that now. Uh, anyway, how how would you recommend people get back into the practice? Then? You know, just or how did you get into it? Let's uh, um, advice. Yeah, I, 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 I would just say don't be afraid to change your practice. You know, you've done it. Uh, you've done your practice for such a long time. So just you don't don't force yourself to do to do the the traditional way you can just exchange your uh, some of the the postures like um like uh, parshvakonasana external rotation everything is so painful so i just do other things i just do like ada chandrasana and i just add other stuff in so i do a lot of uh uh, Matthew Sweeney's moon sequence. I, I really like that. Although that's a lot of hip openers, but, uh, uh, I just modify and I do other things. So I think, I mean, you're used to having a practice. So it will probably make you, uh, sad and uh, decrease your endorphin level if you don't do a practice. So just do a practice, but just, you know, change it and, and be creative and do something you enjoy doing. I think that's yeah. important. Yeah. That's, that's 
really good advice because I think so many people are just kind of attached to doing the same thing. And if you don't do the same thing, it's like I've lost everything. It's, a, it's not the case at all. It's just, you know, at the end of the day, it's all, a, you know, it's a practice and the flow, as you mentioned. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Concentration and many things. And yeah. And, uh, and yeah, Matthew has got some some great sequences there. In fact, I'm going to see him in a couple of days, so I'll pass on your your well oh. wishes to his sequence um, for his. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, I have enjoyed it so much. Uh, yeah, all right, okay, I'm, I'll tell yeah. him that. Maybe you should do one for hip replacements next as he gets older. Maybe <laughs> I can convince him. <laughs> yeah, I, I purchased the video, but I think I've you know fully uh, you know been. It's probably uh, I've I've played it so many times that uh, I, the 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 sound is crackling now. I'm maybe it's because. I've played it so many times. <laughs> All right, really getting yeah. to send you another one. Um, well, well, what, what's what, okay? So we're, you know, just trying to finish it here, and I, I think I could talk to you for longer, and, and um, I'm sure people may want to reach out with Ellen. So I'll put yeah. your your contacts no, in the in I, the uh, in the show notes. But I also do think it's important to not make you know your Ashanga sequence your only thing that you Practice. have. To yeah. Come. Yeah. You know, you can have other practices that that you can enjoy as well. Uh, so for me, that was that was really important. That you know, I had other things to do. Um, I think that is important. I mean, there was advice told to suggested to me by Chuck Miller years ago, and he said, "I was like twenty seven at the time." He said, "Look, once you can't do this, what are you going to do?" You know, mm. and I was like, "I didn't like that at the time, so I just kind of ignored it for many years." But mm. it's a bloody good point, isn't it? Once you can't do this so much, or once you can't just keep jumping, what's your practice then? And I think mm. that's that's a that's a good question. Mm. Um, right. So, what what does the future hold for you? What what are your plans in Norway? What, you know, what are you working on now? Uh, yeah, let, well, let us know where I, you're at now. I'm actually. Uh, uh, I want to go back to to teaching more regularly. I want to do, I want to try out teaching more online. I kind of miss the the community of being in the Meister room, so I'm going to copy you, Adam. I'm going to ah. do online. Yeah. I want to do. Yeah. I want to make and create an online community, so cool. I, you know, I can see students who who don't live in uh, in uh, Norway or in my immediate surrounding. Uh, so I hope I can. Uh, my aspiration is to keep in touch with students and and create some mm. kind of community by you know practicing. Mysore morning sessions and some meditation sessions. Uh, let's see how it develops. Maybe it could be a real, uh, uh, a bit expanded community where we do uh, different practices uh, together. But that's something. Sounds I'm, great. Yeah. I'm yeah. Into. Totally and, behind the online. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. And, yeah. and of course, I want to continue my, uh, my uh, yoga adventures in Nepal. Uh, I love bringing people there. And uh, uh, over the last years, I've explored different avenues, like combining retreat and mountain trekking and the introduction to the, the spiritual uh, pilgrimage sites of, uh, of Nepal. So, so that's something I also really love doing. It's a, it's a way I like to, to communicate what I studied and what I learned about Buddhism. And there's no better way to do it than to, to do it where the traditions are alive. And quite often you, you travel to a place and you kind of, you're always a spectator. You, you don't know, oh, can I go in and sit in the, in the monastery? Is it okay if I do that? And yes. So we do that. We live in monasteries. We uh, go visiting and, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite wonderful. And we walk the mountains. 
That so, sounds fantastic. I hope you carry on being able to do that. And uh, yeah, maybe I'll come on one. Yeah. Sure, I will. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you will too. Yeah, that sounds really good. Okay. Well, uh, you know, thanks for coming on, Ellen. And as I said, I'll put um, your, your contact details on mm-hmm. the show notes so people can reach out to you if they need to. Um, um, and there probably will be a number of people doing that because, <laughs> uh, you know, unfortunately, the Ashtanga tradition does uh, tend to lead some people to uh, to injury and and to surgery. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people will, will take inspiration from from you and, and what you've done. And, uh, yeah, it remains to say thanks for your time. And, and I've really enjoyed catching up with you after so yeah, many like years. That. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I hope to meet you in person again at some point. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Adam.